Uh, so welcome to the first week of Rough Crowd. I'm obviously excited about this series uh, for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons I'm very excited about the series is we're going to hear stories from people in our seats. We're going to hear stories of what happens when God gets a hold of people like us, people who are part of a really rough crowd. I'm excited about it. And some of you might not be used to a pastor calling the church that he goes to a rough crowd because a lot of us grew up in church or we went to one just one time or we saw the dude with the picket sign on the street corner and it built up all this anger and bitterness toward Jesus and church and Christians in our life. And probably at the root of all of that is this idea of we look at those people and we go, man, those people think they're perfect. And I know that they're not. That's my story, at least. That's the baggage that I grew up with. I, I, I grew up in that family. I went to church like, you know, a billion times a week. I even went to a Christian private high school for a couple years. And an example of this in my life of this, like me thinking they were hypocrites, uh, an example would be there's this dude who worked at my school. I really looked up to this guy. I really respected this guy. Um, and at one point he tells me, quote, he goes, hey, Ben, you'll never become a man if you don't play football. And I respected the guy. And I, you know, so I'm like, well, I can't have that happen. So I played football in the summer. And actually, surprisingly, um, I was pummeled every single day. I was just absolutely <laughs> pummeled. <laughs> and so the, before the actual season started, I quit. I'm like, screw that. And I quit, but I felt shame because I believed the guy, right? So I'm like, I'm just going to be a boy. Like, I guess I'm the kind of person who can't like handle tough stuff. But then at the same time, that same guy, he was fired six months later for repeatedly sneaking off to the broom closet with the secretary. If you wink like you know <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about they weren't sweeping all right uh, so he gets fired for that and I it, my brain started like clicking and a couple things I remember thinking a couple things one of them was this I remember thinking okay never again am I going to let a Christian make me feel shame for not living up to their standard when they can't even live up to their own that's one thing I thought. The other thing I thought was, if this dude obviously needed so much help with his marriage and relationships and faithfulness to his wife, like, why did he pretend like everything was perfect all the time? Like, isn't church supposed to be the place to go to when you have issues like that? And it is supposed to be that. But mine wasn't. The one I went to, you couldn't, you couldn't be honest about that stuff. And so I started to be furious at Christians. Eventually, I was furious at God, even though I shouldn't, it's not his fault. I shouldn't have been furious at him. I was just furious for a decade. And at the root of it, I, was, I went, those people, these people, people who fill up rooms like this, they think they're perfect. And I know that they're not. But at the same time, here's something interesting. All right, it's very interesting. It's hard to grasp. It's a dilemma. And it's the reason I think that uh, Christians sometimes feel like they're supposed to pretend to be perfect. Let me explain it. Because if you just hear the first part, you'll want to leave and you should leave. But let me explain the whole thing. Here's our dilemma. It's your dilemma, my dilemma, everyone's dilemma. It's this. Jesus actually does command you to be perfect. He does. He tells you to. He says it outright. He says it like this. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, you can't get more clear and concise. And it's just two words. Be perfect is what Jesus says. And it might seem overboard of Jesus at first, but think about this. Regardless of what you believe about God right now, just think about this. This is the standard you have for yourself, right? Why would, why would you ever feel regret or shame or insecurity or anything like that? Unless, like Scott talked about last week, you can't even live up to your own expectations. Maybe because your expectation of yourself is perfection. If that's the case, we can't blame a literally perfect God 
for looking at us and saying, you have to be perfect if you want to have a relationship with me. But at the same time, you know more than anyone else in the room that you fall short of perfection all of the time. There's not a single person in this room who when I said, hey, God commands you to be perfect. Not a single person in this room when they heard that, they're like, okay, whew, sweet, check. You know, like perfection, no problem. You know, it's not a single person in the room who's like, I was afraid you were going to say that God commands me to be ambidextrous and then I'm screwed. Like, I, you know, there's no one who was relieved when I said, God says, be perfect. So that's our dilemma. God says, be perfect. We can't. What do we do about it? Because if our only option is to show up here to Flatirons and hear that, and then you just like go home and try real hard for a couple hours until you, you fall apart, like, check, please. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a part of that. But what if there is another option? And what if in reality, everything that we need to do has been done for you? Because you, you see, at just the right time, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And, and God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So did Jesus die for us as soon as we achieved perfection? No, because that, that verse said that while we were still sinners and sin is falling short of God, sin is our state of imperfection. So what that verse actually means is this, while we were still imperfect, Jesus died for us. Jesus loved you and died for you before you even had the chance to, to screw it all up in your head and think that you got to fix your whole life for him to like you. He did all that stuff for you before any of that. And when you put your faith in Jesus, he takes up residence in your life. And immediately he makes you perfect in the eyes of God. Meaning when God sees you, he sees Jesus. He sees the perfection that he demanded in the first place. And that's just the eternal grace that you get when you put your faith in Jesus. The here and now practical in this day in life grace that you get is that Jesus leads you down this road towards perfection. That's called sanctification. Growth takes time. We talked about that in Tree of Life if you were here. And you might be going like me. You might be going, hey, listen, I can give you a laundry list of all the different ways that I was not like Jesus from today alone. And it's like, you know, 11 in the morning. So how can God look at me and think that I'm perfect? And that's what's so incredible about God's grace. Because as Jesus leads you down this road towards perfection, towards becoming more and more like him, every single time you trip and you fall and you screw up, he gives you the grace you need to remain in him. And for him to remain in you, for him not to give up on you, and for you to remain perfect in God's eyes, it's hard to grasp. It's incredible. It's truly amazing grace. And what we're going to try and do over the course of this series is grasp that kind of amazing grace. And the way I'm wired, I have enough years of cynicism under my belt. I'm like, don't just talk about it. Show it to me. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Here's what this kind of grace looks like. My dad pointed something out to me. He's like, I don't know if you ever noticed, if you can hear it on the ice, but the sound of your skates carving through the ice and just echoing in the building. Those are NHL players. You can hear it. And he's like, my son is out there. I'm Jack Skilly. I've been going to Flatirons for just over a year now. Um, professional hockey player. Uh, moved out here from Madison, Wisconsin. 
So when I was 18, I was drafted by the Chicago Black Blackhawks, seventh overall. Um, and I remember kind of sitting there going, looking at the projections before the draft and going, yeah, I could see myself going the 11th pick or even 9th to Ottawa. And, you know, you're trying to play it out. And then all of a sudden, the Blackhawks have the next pick. And I got goosebumps thinking about it. But the camera crew came up right in front of me. And um, I was just like, no way, no way. Like, it's going to be me. And boom, that was it. They announced my name. I walk up to stage and I was just, it just, it was such a surreal moment. Like, um, looking back on it, that was the moment when the hard work truly started. The, the expectations that were on me um, after I got drafted, um, they were extremely high. And uh, nobody had higher expectations of myself than I did. So when someone, when I felt that outside pressure, I like took it up 10 different notches. And I kind of had this expectation I put on myself that, oh, I was drafted seventh overall. I need to light it up. This, and if I don't light it up, then I'm just not living up to the hype. And then you go into the pros out of college and you're not having success. I got sent down and that was when all of the chatter began with the fans. When other people are saying that, hey, Jack Skilly's a bust. He's not living up to the hype of a seventh overall pick. What, what am I saying to myself? It's 10 times worse. I turned my back on God. I resented him for it. I was blaming him for everything that was going on. So I said, that's it. I'm doing it on my own. I don't need you. What I was saying to myself was, you're, just, you're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. You are a bust. You've never been picked that high. You may never make it to the NHL. Most certainly won't be a full-timer. Like, like the worst messages. I was defeated before I even stepped on the ice. So I did that failed and I got to the point where I finally dropped to my knees and I prayed, God, I can't do this anymore. Please do something. This was God at work in my life, getting me out here because my faith wouldn't be where it is without moving to Denver and being a part of Flatirons. Started trusting these men that were of the church and um, building relationships with these men that I had never had before. Um, I started having friends outside of the game real friends that like I could talk to about real life scenarios about God. I could talk about and hear them talk about their life with God. I always had this view that I wouldn't, yeah, like I wouldn't be liked outside of the hockey world for any other reason other than the fact that I play in the NHL. I said a prayer. Uh, it was God, forgive me. Please forgive me for saying this, that, and that about myself. And help me love myself like you love me. Help me see that. Can I ask you to maybe do something intense? Sure. If God walked through the front door right now, Jesus walked through the front door and said in the midst of all the craziness, here's who Jack Skilly is. If God walked through the front door, uh, He'd say, Jack, you have a big heart. You have the ability to lead by example. And you're a strong, courageous person. And um, I, I get emotional because um, it's <laughs> something that I should have told myself 22 years ago.
So I'm sitting there interviewing Jack, and of all the people to put on ice skates, he's in like the 1% best of them in the world, and it's still not enough. And he's sitting there talking, and I'm going, if you replace ice skating with some stuff in my life, he and I are the same person right now. And there's so many heads nodding. I always hear Jim say, like, you see the heads nod, and it's like, you really can. Like, this is our life. It takes a ton of bravery and, and, and vulnerability and honesty for Jack to get to do that. He's training in Ohio right now. Um, Jack, if you're watching online, thank you for that. We love you for it, man. Can you give it up for Jack? All right, so not feeling enough. I mean, this reminds me of myself, which I'll talk about in a second. It actually reminds me of the person that I've been planning on teaching today anyway. Because um, today I want to look at Jesus' friends. I want to look at who did Jesus hang out with uh, when he was walking around this planet physically 2,000 years ago. Like after a long day, who did Jesus go and grab a beer with at Buffalo Wild Wings? That's what I want to look at. And I know we'd have Chick-fil-A or whatever, but... Um, and he doesn't drink beer. He drinks wine. He makes it, actually. Um, so... Uh, so we could talk all day long about how rough these 12 guys are, these 12 disciples, Jesus' best friends. Today I just want to talk about one. His name is Peter. He's my favorite. I love him and I'm learning a lot through him right now. So here's who Peter is. Peter's just like a totally, totally average guy. He's married. He does not have a formal education and he's a fisherman. And you got to understand that fishermen in Jesus' day are about like fishermen in our day. And don't think fly fishing, right? That's like the high art version of fishing, and that's definitely not Peter. Peter's like a deadliest catch kind of fisherman. He's just rough and crazy and fearless. Uh, one hilarious thing is that every single time you see Peter fishing in the Bible, he's not catching any fish, and that's just funny. So he's not even a good fisherman. When Jim and I were talking about this talk, he goes, actually, Jim, uh, he's like more of a net thrower when you think about it. I'm like, that's right. He's a professional net thrower. That's Peter. He spends all day long on water uh, trying to catch fish while fighting to like fighting against these storms. So this lake was known for these crazy storms that would come out of nowhere, could capsize the boat. And so he spends all day on water, like just throwing caution to the wind, chanting piratey songs about life on the sea with a PBR in his hand, like a freaking champion. The guy's a cool dude. I like him. Um, actually, the first time we meet Peter and the first time that Jesus meets Peter, Peter has finished a long day of net throwing and not catching anything. And so he's cleaning the seaweed out of his empty nets in his boat that's docked on the shore. And Jesus climbs up into the boat and uses Peter's boat as a stage to teach a bunch of people. And when he's done teaching, he looks at just Peter and his buddies and he goes, hey, why don't you like put this boat out in deep water and we'll put the nets out and, and catch some fish. And Peter doesn't know Jesus yet. And so Peter basically goes, hey, you know, I'll do it because you look like an important person, but trust me, I'm, a pro I'm like a professional at not catching fish, and today we're not going to catch any, like I've already tried. Um, and so this verse says that um, Peter rolled his eyes and put his PBR back in the cooler. Um, <laughs> I made that up. <laughs> it might be in the message version, though. Um, <laughs> So they try it anyway. They go out to deep water and, and they, <laughs> I like that joke. I'm still laughing about it. I made myself laugh. <laughs> okay. So they go out to deep water and they put out their nets and they end up catching so many fish <laughs> that their nets start like breaking apart and splitting apart. 
It's a miracle. And when Peter sees this, He's, he's like astonished and he understands that Jesus is something totally different. Jesus is like something special, right? And so Peter has the reaction that every single imperfect person always has whenever they bump into perfection. Look at this. <clears throat> so when Simon Peter saw this, saw all the fish, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. So in other words, Peter says, listen, listen, Jesus, I'm too, I'm too bad and you're too good, and you're too perfect, and I'm too imperfect, so please just get away from me, because if you hang around me for much longer, I'm going to let you down. I'm not enough. But then here's how Jesus responds back to Peter. He says this, then Jesus said to Simon, and that's Peter, he said, don't be afraid, and from now on, you're going to catch men. And so they pulled their boats on shore, left everything, and followed him. So Jesus' response was this. He says, listen, Peter, I know you're not perfect. I want to be your friend anyway. And and listen, if you quit net throwing and follow me, you're going to be shocked at the kind of life that I'm going to give you. You're going to be shocked at the kind of things I'm going to do through you. I'm going to help you and lead you and make you catch men, make you bring people to me. So quit making excuses and stop being afraid of your own brokenness because I'm not afraid of it, and follow me. And so Peter does. He follows him. And then until Jesus dies and comes back to life, Peter did a lot of stuff right and a lot of stuff wrong, mostly because he's this crazy sailor guy who lives every moment in the moment at a thousand miles an hour. Sometimes this is good because it gets him into good situations, interesting scenarios. Uh, Like we just saw, he left his whole entire family-owned fishing business immediately to follow Jesus. That's impulsive. Another time, uh, Jesus is walking on water and Peter sees it and says, Jesus, can I come walk on water with you? And Jesus goes, yeah, sure. And so he jumps out of the boat without thinking twice. That's all that whole situation is crazy person stuff. Like I'm on medicine to not jump out of boats and Peter's just jumping out of them. It's it's crazy. He's the first of uh, Jesus's 12 buddies to publicly declare. He goes, hey, Jesus, I think that you're the living son of the living God. That's gutsy and outspoken. Other times, though, this thousand miles an hour thing is bad for Peter. He's also the only disciple to have ever chewed out Jesus. It didn't go well for him. Another time, he just kind of reacts and cuts a dude's ear off, and Jesus is like, and like sticks it back on the dude's face. That's like, I've never seen an ear get stuck back on a face, but that's the noise it makes for sure. Uh, <laughs> another story for another time. Um, actually, what I want to look at right now is the story of Peter's like biggest thousand mile an hour gone wrong moment. And it's just hours before Jesus is arrested. So here's the situation. It's Peter and Jesus and all of his buddies and they're eating dinner together. And Peter decides to show off and and kind of brag about himself and show some bravado. And so he says out loud in front of the whole table, he goes, hey, Jesus, I don't know about the rest of these guys. Can you imagine? I bet he was so annoying to be around. And he goes, I don't know about the rest of these guys. But uh, me, at least, like, I'd rather die than ever abandon you. So you always got me, is is what Peter says. It's a huge claim. And Jesus has tough news for him. He looks back and goes, hey, Peter, so actually, actually, before the rooster crows tonight, you're going to disown me three times and you're going to abandon me. And later that night, just like Jesus predicted, he's arrested and hauled into court and all of his friends, including Peter, scatter and hide because they don't want to get the death sentence that they know that Jesus is about to get. And that very same night, just like Jesus predicted, Peter is asked three times by complete strangers, hey, aren't you buddies with Jesus? And three times, scared out of his mind, Peter replies, hey, I don't even know who you're talking about. Just leave me alone. 
And after that third time of denying even knowing who Jesus is, here's what happens. Immediately a rooster crowed and then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken just hours ago. Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And so Peter went outside and wept bitterly. So you got this loud, strong, vulgar, like man's man of a sailor, Peter, and he's collapsed on the ground weeping. And here's what I think he's so upset about. Here's what I think is going on in his head. I think he's going, see, Jesus, I told you when I first met you that this would happen. I tried to warn you. I told you I'm too imperfect. I'm too rough of a person. I told you to get away from me because I knew I would let you down. I think this moment for Peter is proof that he's not enough. And it leaves him, leaves him collapsed on the ground because Peter had a poor strategy for perfection. Here's what I mean. Remember, when, when Peter first meets Jesus, Peter says, hey, Jesus, get away from me. I'm not enough. And Jesus goes, stop being so afraid of not being enough. I want to be around you anyway. I want to make you perfect. And if Peter had lived in that strategy for the rest of his life, it would have been great. But instead, almost immediately, Peter changes his strategy from Jesus will make me perfect to I need to make myself perfect. I need to prove myself so I guess I need to do or say the craziest or boldest things I can think of, and maybe that will meet Jesus' expectations. Or in other words, Peter became the person who began constantly asking himself, am I enough? Am I enough? Why else would he be the first and only one to jump out of the boat and try and walk on water? And why else would he be the one who stands at a table and says, I don't know about these guys, but I'd die for you, Jesus. Why else would he do stuff like that unless he's just desperately trying to prove to himself and to other people that he's enough? And Peter's whole strategy rests on his own power. And so he's constantly failing, which constantly reinforces the message that he's not enough, which means tomorrow he has to try even harder and fail even bigger to the point where he's jumping out of boats and saying he's going to die for people. And for a lot of us in this room, let's just be honest. We heard Skilly in the video talk about not being enough and it hit a little too close to home. And now there's some of us who are starting to cave in on ourselves because we realize that the whole talk is going to be about this. And it gives us a stomach ache because that is the tape that's been playing in your head for as long as you can remember. It's the motivation for everything dumb and everything sometimes great that you do. It's you trying to prove you're enough. The tape is going, you're not enough. I'm not enough. I am not enough. I mean, why else would you come home completely defeated when your coworker gets the promotion that you wanted so badly? And don't get me wrong, there is nothing, there's nothing wrong with dreaming big and wanting to advance your career and provide well for your family. What I'm saying is when you come home and you feel like a loser because you didn't get the promotion or fill in the blank. Could it be because your strategy for perfection, for feeling and being enough, completely relies and rests in your salary and position and performance? And why else for the moms in the room? Like, why else would you get furious when you see other moms posting pictures of how perfect their days with their toddlers, just doing crafts and teaching them Latin? You know? <laughs> like, and then meanwhile, you're just trying to get your kids to quit crapping themselves, like, all the time. Like... <laughs> But ser <laughs> seriously though, for real, why would it make you mad? Or why would it make you sad? 
unless your entire strategy for perfection, for being mom enough, rests in you having enough power to make your kids perfect. And you are definitely not alone here. This is a me too moment. In fact, I'll, I'll let you into Ben world. <laughs> I'll give you a snapshot of where I am right now because this whole am I enough thing in my life has spun out of control lately. See, my strategy for perfection, unfortunately, has always, always been my work ethic. I work hard. And so I'm constantly thinking, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough. And then in a desperate attempt to feel like I am and prove that I am, without even thinking about Jesus, and I work at a church, I work myself into the ground. I go, come on, man, like you got to work harder than anyone else in the building because that's the only thing you have going for you. The thing with church, though, is that the job is literally never done until Jesus comes back. So there's always another hour I could put in, another project to take on, a coffee to grab with someone, a talk to write, a video to make. I mean, there's as much work as I want to have. And so I do too much. Just like Peter, thousand miles an hour, all day long, just trying to prove, prove I'm something. It's too much to get done, so I stay late. And now my wife and my kids are eating dinner without me more than they are with me in a typical week. And when I do get home on time, I'm completely exhausted. I just collapse on the couch, totally not present. Maybe you can relate, relate to this, but here's what my life is like. I wake up every single morning and I am a husband and I'm a dad and I'm a pastor. That's who I am. But just like Skilly said in that video, I'm defeated before my feet even hit the ground. Before, I, before I've even finished breakfast, I've concluded that I'm not enough to be a good dad and a good husband and a good pastor. And then just to let you all the way in and give you a full picture of where my headspace is. I was completely humbled and thankful for Jim and Scott adding me to the teaching team a few months ago. I love doing this. It's what really one of the few things in my life where I feel very confirmed that God is leveraging a gift in me and doing more than I can do on my own. At the same time, though, the weight of responsibility goes up because I don't take this lightly at all. And then the expectations I put on myself go up, up, up. When I was interviewing Skilly for the video and, and he says, I had the mentality of I'm a number seven overall draft pick. Like I have to go out and light it up. And if I don't, then I'm not meeting everybody's expectations. I'm sitting there nodding going like, this is who I am. And this is what I feel with this. And I had come to the conclusion that if I make one single mistake while writing or studying or teaching up on this stage, or if, I, if I have to read one more just rude email, from someone who's just like, dude, why'd you even bother? If I have to sit through one more of those things, I'm gonna break. And when I do, then God himself is gonna shake his head in disappointment about me. And I don't even care what you think. I think that he's gonna be sad that he ever let me try this. And I feel like he's gonna take it away from me as quickly and as surprisingly as he handed it to me. And so you can imagine how hard I took it when Thursday, just days ago, Jim calls me into his office. He's got my talk in his hands and I laugh and I'm like, hey, got, do I have to like change the whole thing? And he goes, uh, sit down. That's not good. <laughs> so I, I go in and sit down and, and, and we're related. He's my father-in-law. He knows me really well, knows my heart and knows how I teach. And so he goes, hey, listen, I know what you're trying to say here in this section, pages. 
He goes, I know what you're trying to say here in this section is actually good, but you are communicating it so poorly that it's coming across like false theology. You need to go through and rewrite the whole thing. And he left and he gave me space and time to rewrite and I'm sitting in his office alone and I have this Peter moment where I'm like literally in tears going, God, I told you I'm not enough. I've been telling you for months. I'm not enough to do this. I never went to school for this ever. I'm not even ordained yet. This has never been a trajectory for my life. I mean, to work at a church, let alone teach at one, I have more years under my belt of being furious at God than I do of following him. And so I look at God and I go, see, I've been telling you for months that this would happen. And now it's happening. I'm letting you down just like I knew I would. And I don't know a single other church where the teaching pastor would admit that he almost like, accidentally taught you heresy. I think it'd be a great slogan for the website, you know, where it's like flat irons, where sometimes we almost accidentally teach heresy. We don't, but sometimes we get close. You know, it's a long slogan. I need to work on it. <laughs> Just trying to be honest with you, and that's where I'm at right now. And the reason I'm talking about it is because it train wrecked me. I've been train wrecked since they brought me on the team. I'm only really feeling good since Thursday. I know, that's bizarre. <laughs> Train wrecked me in because here was my strategy for perfection, for feeling and being enough. I have walked up, I've done this, I think it's, this may be my fifth time or something like that. Uh, until now, today is the first time I've walked up, oh man, honestly, it's the first time I've walked up those steps and felt like I'm not coming up here alone. Because my strategy for perfection has been to be the absolute best father and dad and pastor possible on my own power. So what's your strategy? What is your strategy for feeling enough? My strategy for perfection, for feeling like enough is fill in the blank, is what? And now let me ask you, is it working? Because I just wouldn't be surprised if you're being honest if for most of us in this room, like at night when the lights are off and the day is done and you have nobody to pretend for anymore and you are chained to your honest thoughts, I bet that behind all of your fears and all of your worries and all of your insecurities, all of your anger, everything is one question. Am I enough? So what do we do about this? Well, here's where I think it, it starts. At least this is what God has been walking me through since Thursday. <laughs> There's this great moment after Jesus' death when Peter and some of the guys are out trying to catch some fish because after Peter had that moment where Jesus dies and he denied Jesus, after he had that moment of looking at God going, see, I told you this would happen. I'm not enough. He just goes back to old life. He goes back to the only thing he knows how to do. He's hopeless. He goes back to not catching fish. And so he and his buddies are in this boat, and, and then Jesus, completely and physically resurrected, walks up onto the shore, and he calls the boat in. And as soon as they get close enough to see that it's Jesus, Peter freaks out. He can't believe it. You wouldn't be able to believe it either. And he jumps out of the boat, and he swims into shore because he has to be with Jesus right now. He's got some stuff to clean up. So everyone gets into shore, and, and Jesus cooks them up a meal. And they eat what must be like the most surreal breakfast of all time, right? And they're just like trying to eat eggs and fish and be like, so you were, how's being 
dead and Hal's being back. You know, they have just like a strange breakfast. And the reason I love the story so much is after this breakfast, Jesus takes Peter and they go on a walk and it's just he and Peter. And Jesus asks Peter, he goes, hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter goes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus asks him three times. And Peter replies three times. And and Jesus doesn't need to hear it from him. And Jesus isn't double checking. Jesus knows Peter loves him. You're just giving Peter the chance to like make a couple more bold claims that are actually true this time. And after that, Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, okay, listen, I know you love me. You don't have to tell me. So now here's what is going to happen. You're going to go catch men like I promised. You're going to go do that. You're going to start this revolution, this thing called church. You're going to start it. That's going to be incredible. That is a massive task. And, and, and those words are intimidating if Jesus expects Peter to be strategic and passionate and brave enough on his own power to kick off church as we know it. But this is not what Jesus expects. And actually, after Jesus tells Peter, hey, here's what I'm going to do through you, he repeats the same words that he told Peter way back when he met him. Way back when Peter goes, hey, get away from me, I'm not enough. Look at this. Then Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Don't go first, follow me. Jesus does not expect Peter to be enough on his own. Instead, Jesus expects to be enough for Peter. And a few days later, Peter and the disciples received the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus living inside of them and me and you, leading them and making them enough. And Peter immediately marches back into the same spot of town that he was hiding from just days ago. And Jesus leads him to teach a sermon that makes 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus. It must have been a good talk. And then Jesus helps Peter to lead his people in Jerusalem and start church, what we are doing today in the face of persecution that we can't even understand in our cultural context. And in fact, Peter, the same guy who looks at Jesus and says, I'm not even good enough to be in your presence, is eventually murdered on a cross for being too much like Jesus. It's hard to find a more radically changed life than Peter himself. And the same Holy Spirit who radically changed his life is still alive and active, which means that same Holy Spirit can radically change your life. But I've I've had enough years of cynicism in my life to go, okay, that sounds nice, but how? Don't just talk about it. How? How does this happen? And here's how, and it's the thing that I need to learn from Peter and maybe you too. Because for most of Peter's life, he was asking the wrong question. He was asking, am I enough? And this question leaves Peter and it leaves us every single time we ask it. It leaves Peter and us unfulfilled. Because Jesus is never going to tell Peter what Peter thinks he wants to hear, ever. Jesus is never going to tell Peter that Peter is enough. That would make Jesus bad or wrong, or at least it would make Jesus a liar who's more concerned with making Peter feel good for five minutes than he is concerned with fixing Peter's everything. And this goes back to our dilemma, because Jesus isn't going to tell Peter he's enough, because Peter is not enough. He's already proven that. But at the same time, Peter needs to be perfect if he's ever going to have a relationship with Jesus. So what's the solution to the dilemma And Peter finds the solution to the dilemma eventually. Because finally, Peter quit asking, am I enough? And instead he started asking, is Jesus enough? 
Or how about this? Is Jesus enough to make me enough? Peter changed his strategy for perfection because we literally need someone to do this for us. We need someone to take up residence in our life and represent us and transform us into perfection in the eyes of our God. We need someone to, in the here and now, practically lead us toward perfection, down a road toward perfection so that we're not constantly stuck in all of our old failures and disappointment. We need that. And on top of all of this, we need someone to cover for us every single time we stumble and fall and screw up along this road. And Jesus promises he's enough to do that. Here's how he states that to a guy named Paul. He says this, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. And if we want any shot at becoming more like the people we want to be and any shot at life without the terrible am I enough question haunting every single moment of our lives, then our strategy for perfection has to become Jesus because Jesus says he's enough to make you enough. And when we let him be enough, he radically changes our lives. Here's a picture of what this radical change looks like from from Peter. Because after he goes and teaches that sermon, that 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus, uh, after he teaches that sermon, here's how the crowd reacted to him. Look at this. So when they, the, the they is a crowd of people who knew who Peter used to be. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. He wants to change you so much it will shock yourself and shock your friends and your family. And all of this is such good news for us because it means that Jesus looks at us and says, hey, stop trying to be a parent on your own power or fill in the blank. Stop trying to figure out retirement on your own power And, and stop trying to figure out being a student on your own power. Stop trying to figure out all of that stuff on your own power and just shut up and follow me. And I'll take care of all of that stuff because I want to change you into the kind of mom and dad and student and whatever, fill in the blank, that will shock you and your friends and your family. And guess what? Every single time you screw up, today and tomorrow for the rest of your life, I will cover that too. But most of the time when we screw up, we look at ourselves And we go, see, Jesus, I'm not enough. I told you I wasn't enough. And all along he's going, no, you're missing the point. Every time you screw up, look at me. And go, are you still in for this? Are you still enough for this? Because that's how rough I am. Are you still going to stick around? And he's going to say yes. And that's what this whole series is about. Because I don't know about you, but that is the kind of church I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a rough crowd that is being made perfect. He's changing us so much, it's shocking our friends and our family. I want to be a part of a rough crowd who, it's like we're messy and we're broken and we still make mistakes, but because of Jesus, we're changing. It's a, I want to be a me too place. Place where we go, hey, are you still a mess? Yeah, me too. But hey, is Jesus still your only hope? Your only strategy for perfection? Well, yeah, me too. Which means we can't throw stones at each other. Like what right do I have to make you feel guilt or shame for anything you've ever done in your life? I don't have that right, so I won't do it. 
And next week, we'll come in here and we'll dig into the details of what this new strategy for perfection looks like practically. What's the first step? But until then, in case you didn't know, or you need reminded, or it's your first time sitting in the seat today, this is who we are at Flatirons. We're a rough crowd of people who can honestly, honestly say, yes, like I'm addicted still. And I'm habitual and, and repetitive and I'm selfish and lonely and I'm depressed and sometimes I'm stupid and I'm sinful. Guess what else I am? I'm saved. And guess what else I am? Perfect in the eyes of my God. And guess what else I'm not? I'm not the man I used to be because he's fixing me. That's who Flatirons is, and that's what the next few weeks are all about, because we might be a rough crowd, but we are a rough crowd that he is making perfect. Pray with me. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the rough, rough, rough crowd in this room. You are shocking me. You're shocking a bunch of people in this room. There's a bunch of this people in this room who want to be shocked. We want that kind of change. We want to hold on to the promise that you are who you say you are. And you'll keep all the promises you made to us. So God, please keep the promise you made to us through your son, Jesus, that you're going to move through a rough crowd like us. God, if you can take someone like Peter and have him kick off this thing that we're still doing today, then maybe, just maybe, you can do something with me other than the same cycle of disappointment and failure and regret and guilt and shame just over and over and over again. God, set us free from it. God, I feel thankful right now. I feel thankful for everyone in this room. I feel thankful for you being the kind of God you are. You're perfect. You're infinite. You could be anything you want to be, and you choose to be Father, and you choose to be sacrifice. And I love you for it, and I thank you for it, and I worship you for it. God, over the next few weeks, please help us to figure out a brand new strategy for feeling like enough and for perfection, because we can't do it on our own, but we're still trying. God, in the best way possible over the next three weeks, break us. And in the most perfect way possible over the next three weeks, put us back together. I know you will, and I thank you for it. I love you, and I pray this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.